Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Business of Medicine series on ENT in a Nutshell. I'm your host, Ashley Nasiri, and today we're joined by Professor Michael Chernu to discuss U.S. healthcare spending. Dr. Chernu, thank you so much for joining us. Ashley, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Dr. Chenu is a professor of health policy and the director of the Healthcare Markets and Regulation Lab at Harvard Medical School. He is currently serving as the chair of the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, also known as MedPAC. Dr. Chenu's research examines several areas related to improving the healthcare system, including alternative payment models, low-value care, and the causes and consequences of rising healthcare spending. Today, we're privileged to have him as our expert guest to shed some light on the U.S. healthcare spending and the future of our healthcare system. Professor Chenu, can you start off by describing the size of the U.S. healthcare market and annual spending figures? In the U.S., we spend about not quite 18% of GDP on healthcare. That works out to be a not quite $4 trillion with a T. So it's a pretty sizable portion of the American economy. At this trajectory, uh, where are we headed and what problems do we face in the coming years? So projections, and I guess we should all be cautious about projections, suggest that healthcare spending will grow um, faster than GDP by about a percentage point. So by the end of this decade, around 2028 is when the figures I have go out to, we're projected to spend almost 20% of GDP on healthcare. That is a remarkable amount of spending, and there's a number of challenges that spending poses, largely related to how we're going to finance it, and the problems depend on the different sectors. So, for example, in the Medicare program, there's a Medicare trust fund for Part A spending. Part A of Medicare is largely for inpatient care, hospital payments, and it is now projected to be depleted by 2024 because of a combination of changing demographics and uh, reduced revenue due to the COVID pandemic. Um, In the commercial sector, there's a whole slew of other problems. I won't go through them all now, although I'm happy to discuss them, but it largely hinges on the fact that as commercial premiums rise, employers typically reduce the generosity of benefits, which means that individuals, patients have to pay more out of pocket, which creates a whole number of issues And there's a large um, set of challenges that give rise to that situation. Now, in the U.S., we're facing some of these problems that you've mentioned that are a little bit different um, when we compare our system to, let's say, other countries. What factors and what metrics do we consider when we're looking at performance? And is that different when we think about other healthcare systems? So I mentioned the U.S. spends not quite 18% of GDP on healthcare. The next highest OECD countries, those are the developed countries, spend a little bit north of 12% of GDP on healthcare. So one of, of course, the key metrics that people use is what share of GDP is devoted to healthcare. And the U.S. is spending a far greater share of its income on healthcare than others. And then there's a slew of uh, measures, basically in the spirit of what are we getting for that? Are we getting better quality? Are we getting better access? Generally speaking, the U.S. doesn't look great 
uh, are exceptional on those measures. Often we're middle of the pack. We have roughly the same number of physicians, roughly the same number of hospital beds, um, even waiting times, which people talk a lot about in other countries and some other countries do spend a lot of time focused on waiting times. But in the U.S., um, it also takes a while sometimes to get access to certain services, others less so. Um, and we tend to be pretty much uh, middle of the pack on most measures, life expectancy, for example, were not particularly exceptional. Um, one of the challenges in all of these international comparisons is the countries are different in a whole range of ways. The underlying health status is different in the countries. The income distribution is different in the countries. So I am wary of reading too much in to direct comparisons between the U.S. and other countries. And I'm certainly wary of looking at other countries enviously and assuming that we could replicate what they do here simply by changing the way our system is designed. How much of this spending, this near 20% of GDP, is considered to be quote-unquote waste or unnecessary health care costs? Is there a way to quantify that? Yeah, I think the key phrase in that question was quote-unquote waste. Um, first, I'm going to answer your question in a minute more directly, but I will say uh, one person's waste is another person's revenue, um, so it's somewhat complicated. The standard number that I think health policy people throw around is 30%. I've seen a more recent number, closer to 25% from uh, Will Schrank and some of his colleagues. But that being said, that's a lot of money. Not all of that is wasteful care the way economists would think about waste. Some of that, for example, is high prices. And I'm sure in a little bit we'll talk more about high prices. High price isn't classic waste in that you're not doing something wasteful. You're just paying more uh, than you otherwise might. Um, so there, there's a, a slew of more nuance behind those wasteful services. Some of them, for example, is what you might consider classic waste, delivering healthcare services that provide little or no value to patients, things that the Choosing Wisely campaign have uh, labeled as waste. And I'm happy to talk about what Choosing Wisely is and how they get to their uh, sense of what waste is. Um, others would be things like um, complications from treatment or um, failure to provide preventive care that leads to more illness. That uh, is considered in many metrics wasteful. But remember, if you're a physician or a provider and someone comes in with poorly managed diabetes and you admit them, that's not wasteful from your point of view. That's an admission that potentially needed to happen. Um, it's just systematically for, uh, overall, that might have been wasteful if we would have done a better job of managing the diabetes. Um, so there's complications in how one thinks conceptually about what waste is. If you look at real differences in practice patterns um, in organizations that I think have the right incentives to manage practice patterns, I think you get a number of sort of related to overuse, if you will, that's much closer to a 10% number. And depending on how you measure those things, maybe even a little bit south of that. I think it would be a great time to get into the Choosing Wisely campaign. Can you describe that a little bit for us and kind of discuss um, how they define waste? The Choosing Wisely campaign was launched by the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, where they challenged specialty societies to come up with services that are uh, often wasteful. Um, and they they did. There's a large number of uh services now that are on these choosing wisely lists. The thing that's important to remember is rarely is a service wasteful. You would never say that MRIs are wasteful, for example. Uh, so many of the recommendations 
involve not just a service, but also a particular instance in which the service might be used. So for example, don't do certain type of testing on low risk patients. So it's not that all testing is wasteful. It has to do with the risk that the patient was under and the choosing wisely campaign is um, sometimes a little vague on exactly how you measure some of those more nuanced aspects of the definition. But there's a lot of measures that relate to uh, testing, for example, and um, there's been a, a lot of attention to these choosing wisely things. There's some initiatives. I've been involved um, with an organization called Milliman that's built a um, tool. My colleague at the University of Michigan, Mark Fendrick, helped design. We've been working with Milliman to develop this tool that will run through claims data and try and put some concrete measures around exactly this amount of waste. But tools like that only pick up, you know, uh, low to mid single digits in waste simply because some of the nuances that define the wasteful services are hard to um, hard to capture in claims data. Now for kind of a, a big question, um, we have, you know, this kind of estimate of how much money per capita or you know, what percentage of GDP we spend on healthcare, And it seems to be a little bit higher compared to some other countries. Although, as you mentioned, there's some baseline differences amongst countries. And then we also have this metric that shows us, you know, we're not doing exceptionally any differently as far as healthcare outcomes or mortality and that kind of measurement. So, how can we determine or what do you believe accounts for these differences in spending? And do those differences in spending actually correlate with health outcomes or life expectancy? So for international comparisons, much of the analysis suggests that the differences between the United States and other countries is just the price we pay for healthcare services. That we pay more for drugs. Uh, we may pay more for a whole range of services. And there's a lot of analysis that looks at, you know, procedures, what we pay for a hip replacement, what we pay for a primary care visit, things like that. We tend to pay a lot more than in other countries. And that's probably the biggest difference. There's a famous paper, uh, Jerry Anderson, Uwe Reinhardt, some others um, wrote uh, titled, It's the Price is Stupid. Um, that's the title of the paper, by the way, not a general comment to anybody. That's sort of a, a major concern, but understand that even within the United States, if you look, for example, across regions and you look at Medicare spending and Medicare spending doesn't have the same problems with price as say in the commercial market, because Medicare spending is based on administrative fee schedules adjusted for differences in wages, for example, across areas, you still find wide variation in spending. So it certainly is the case that prices are important, but it's also the case that there are uh, well-documented differences in practice patterns across the country in virtually um, every service that's really been looked at. Now, just to kind of delve into some of these definitions, um, there is a difference between price and cost and what perspective you're taking when you're attributing those terms to different healthcare services. Um, when we talk about pricing and spending, what number are we actually talking about in these conversations? My sort of definition of the words is price is what you pay per unit of service. And there's some complexity around that that could be an entire podcast as we change the way we pay. We change the definition of what a unit of service is. But nevertheless, if we think about a typical 
say DRG payment or uh, an RBRVS uh, payment for physicians or some version of that is the service. There's the price of that. That's what's paid for it. Then there is the quantity of those services that are used, how many surgeries, how many CT scans, how many admissions. Um, if you multiply the price times the quantity, you get the spending. All of that is separate from the actual underlying cost of production of those services. From the point of view of someone buying insurance, the spending is a portion of the cost of insurance. So um, if you're an employer and you're asking, what does it cost me to get coverage for my workers? You're thinking of uh, the healthcare spending plus whatever administrative fees are tacked on top of spending that goes into your premium. How much does innovation and research and development play a role in our market compared to other countries? Innovation is global in a whole range of ways. We pay a lot more for certain types of innovation. We pay more, for example, for new drugs. Over long periods of time, the real increase in spending is due to new medical services. So if you go back to the 1960s or 70s, or you pick whatever time you want to go back to, most conditions were treated differently. So um, we did not have the same level of imaging. We weren't able to perform the same number of surgeries. We certainly didn't have the same pharmaceutical armament that we have now in a whole variety of ways. And so the development of new services and frankly, the development of new knowledge about how to use those services has been a major driver of long run spending increases. In the short run, prices uh, have grown a lot, particularly in the commercial sector. And the prices in the commercial sector have been driven by things like consolidation of providers. Um, there's been a reduction in the amount of competition between healthcare providers in a whole range of ways. Um, in the U.S. that has led to high prices. That's a shorter run type of concern. So that's basically what I think is going on. The thing to note is at least on average, all of the innovation it is important. So the things that we get, the new drugs, um, the new imaging procedures, the new surgical procedures, all of the things we get by and large um, improve people's health. That doesn't mean that we use them wisely all the time. And so many times you get wasteful use of services that on average are worthwhile to use. One thing that's come up time and time again is the role of end of life care and spending um, during that time period. What is your take on that? And does that actually contribute to a significant portion of our healthcare spending? End-of-life care undoubtedly contributes to a significant portion to our healthcare spending because sick people spend a lot. Um, it turns out that some of the highest spending is on people who you were not sure were going to pass away, and so you were spending a lot to try and prevent that, um, as opposed to, for example, somebody who is in hospice, um, and now you know they're going to pass away. There's a big difference between spending on end-of-life care and wastefully spending on end-of-life care. It's a very challenging um, time um, in general in everybody's health status. Obviously, I, I can speak from personal experience. I imagine you can as well, that as people approach the end of their life, a lot of healthcare resources are often used uh, to help those individuals. So I don't think there, there's sometimes... A, um, implication of questions like that, the end of life care spending is wasteful because people are going to die anyway. I don't 
buy into that narrative. Some of it certainly might be, but there's a lot of waste that's not part of end of life care. And a lot of times when people are really sick, you would want there to be a lot of spending. So I, I think it's important to be a little bit more granular in thinking about our policy responses than to simply take a broad category of spending like end of life care and say, well, we need to reduce our end of life care. We do probably need to do a lot around the way we um, die in this country, but that doesn't mean that all end of life care is um, wasteful. I would agree with that. I think, you know, it is challenging in some cases, however, to get that granular data. Um, kind of along those lines, is there any correlation between increased healthcare spending and increased access to healthcare? And do other countries with more centralized insurance coverage, for example, like Canada, um, have longer wait times or decreased access to care as a result? How does that all play out? Canada does have an issue in some places with wait times. That is true. Um, if you look across all the other OECD countries, some of the data I've seen suggests that we're a little bit more middle of the pack, depending on what you want access to. Um, again, what's going on in the U.S. tends to be that we pay a lot more for services. We don't necessarily have better access. I think, again, part of that is because the American economy is just structured differently in a whole range of other ways. We um, pay a lot for um, highly educated people in the United States. We have uh, a more skewed income distribution than many other countries. And so when you think about a sector like the healthcare sector that has a lot of very highly educated people, you're going to expect in a country like the U.S. to have somewhat uh, greater payment. But there's also, um, we haven't spoken about administrative costs. I'm happy to talk a little bit about administrative costs. We do have a much more administratively complex system than a range of, range of other countries. We could debate whether that is good or bad, but it does lead us to do a lot of things that um, happen in this country, a lot of marketing, billing, and other types of complexities that you might not see in some other countries. Now, what we get for that, of course, is some flexibility and choice, uh, some freedom to do what it is that we want to do, as opposed to other countries where the government involvement might um, constrain people from doing particular things. So um, there will, there is, and there will continue to be a debate about the relative merits of the U.S. versus other countries, I think that's a little bit of a red herring. I think the really only question that should be on the table for us is how do we make our system better given where we find ourselves right now? Because it is not the case that we would or could or should be Canada uh, or the UK or pick whatever country. There are differences across the countries, although that doesn't mean that we can't move in certain directions by learning what happens in other countries. But we have a very fragmented system and a very market-oriented system. And as a relatively free market guy um, who tends to be pretty supportive of market-based um, uh, models, um, I think you have to realize in healthcare, there's a lot of market failures going on, some related to consolidation of providers, some related to the inability of individuals to shop. Um, people talk about price transparency issues all the time. And I think there's a real question in the U.S. about how we balance uh, government action, which is inherently imperfect, with market mechanisms, which themselves are also generally imperfect, particularly in healthcare. How does the uh, cost of administration 
in our healthcare system impact our spending? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways to measure administration, and it's complicated to know what actual spending would count under administrative costs or not. But I think, generally speaking, we spend much more time in the U.S. Uh, than other countries doing activities like billing and marketing and a series of things like that. I don't want to uh, be dismissive of those costs. It obviously increases our spending, and we could debate how much and what otherwise it would be. Um, I should add, we should try and build a system that requires less administrative costs. So I, um, if anyone is uh, keeping score, I am anti-administrative costs, at least anti-wasteful administrative costs. That being said, I think it is misleading to believe that the core problem is that we are just too administratively complex and the belief that all that administration is completely wasteful. We, the administration is often a response to other aspects of the system. And you see this in a whole bunch of, you know, the way we buy prescription drugs through the PBMs, the way the government has set up a whole range of different models that require complicated uh, aspects of quality measurement or risk adjustment or a whole slew of other things, all as administrative complexity to the system. This mere fragmentation of the system, but different insurers interacting with uh, providers, so the providers have to manage the negotiations and the billings with a bunch of competing insurers, all adds some to the administrative costs. And it's undoubtedly does make our system more expensive by a couple of percentage points. Um, but that doesn't mean that if we got rid of all of whatever excess administration uh, we have, we would uh, be spending what other countries are spending, or for that matter, that our system would inherently be better because most of the administrative costs, or at least much of the administrative cost, is a response to other things in the system we'd like, like the freedom to have different insurers and different benefit designs and do a bunch of other things that our market uh, system typically generates. So when we kind of take all of this spending and different factors that are playing a role in our specific healthcare market, as it stands now, what are the major changes required moving forward to provide high quality care more efficiently with less waste and a lower cost? I know that's a huge question, but when you think about our healthcare market, you know, on a national level, what are the main trends or the main things that we're looking at that need to be changed? So in the commercial sector, I think the main thing we need to do is think about the way in which prices are set and how we address high prices. The recent COVID bill had some provisions to reduce surprise billing, which is a big problem. Although the problem of high prices in the commercial sector and the lack of competition is much broader than surprise billing. And I think we need to think about mechanisms to address high prices and insufficient competition in the commercial sector. And that's a, a really big deal. And it potentially will be a growing uh, problem over the next several years. In the Medicare space, and to some extent in the commercial space, I need to th think we need to um, develop better payment models. And, and frankly, we have a fee-for-service system, which is quite cumbersome in a range of ways. Um, there are better payment models, in my opinion. The payment models often contradict. There's challenges about how to encourage adoption of them. There's issues about how to design them and the specific incentives that underlie each of them. There's some operational concerns um, with every model. And I think that we have an opportunity over the next three to five years to come up with a broader strategy of payment reform. The latest COVID uh, relief package included a roughly 
uh, three and three quarters percentage point increase in payments to physicians. But um, apart from that uh, short term bump, physician fees, for example, are scheduled to rise in Medicare basically flat in nominal terms for a long period of time. And given our fiscal situation, I wouldn't expect continual um, increases in physician fees. I think there's concerns about fees uh, for facilities because of things like the productivity adjustments. And I think we need to find a way to allow providers that can create efficiencies in delivering care to benefit from those efficiencies. And broadly speaking, that's what alternative payment models do. It's just we haven't yet designed um, a coherent set of limited models that will give people direction, give physicians and providers more broadly uh, direction about how they can um, succeed financially if they uh, produce care efficiently. And that is sort of the broadest challenge that we face. So to get a little bit more granular, to kind of give our listeners, you know, a concrete example of you know, alternative payment models, as you've mentioned, what are, you know, the direct next steps or plans of action to kind of accomplish these goals that you've mentioned? So you're asking me, a lot of people would differ. I think we should have fewer models. I think the models should be designed in a way to complement each other as opposed to contradict uh, each other. And you'll see a lot of that where uh, different models, um, uh, make it hard for other models to function well. I personally am a fan of population-based payment models. You should think accountable care organizations. There are other quite reasonable people that believe systems of episode-based models would work better. I think we have to figure out how to uh, make the episode-based payment models and the population-based payment models work harmoniously. There's just an enormous amount of complexity in the system because we've started with the premise that we should try a lot of models and implement the ones that seem to work as opposed to starting with the premise, let's come up with a small number of models and develop a different payment system. And so I think we have a long way to go to get to a coherent vision of uh, how we should finance healthcare going forward. For listeners who may largely be physicians or uh, clinicians in, in the medical field, what can individuals uh, like us do to align ourselves with a um, more efficient healthcare system that considers both high quality care, but also, you know, attempts to reduce cost and waste? Is there anything that we can do on an individual level uh, to help out with this problem? You know, increasingly, of course, physicians work in big organizations. So the sort of throwaway answer to your question is, um, in your daily practice, try and follow the best evidence-based guidelines and practice efficiently. But that's a ridiculous thing for an economist to say, and I'm, I'm fully aware of that. Many physicians, of course, are leaders in their organizations, and their organizations are bigger. I think to the extent that they can participate in alternative payment models, and um, they can hopefully... Uh, move into a world in which they are actually incented to provide uh, better care and uh, at a lower cost. Um, that obviously depends on how well the payers can design those alternative payment models, and that's what they're working on. Um, to the extent that physicians can provide input to their organization or the broader system about where efficiencies can be found, that is obviously always a good thing. What changes in the U.S. healthcare spending do you see uh, coming in the next 10, 20, 30 years? 
oh, I, I wish I had a crystal ball. The uh, sort of official prognosticators, as I mentioned, suggest that we're going to grow at about 1% faster than GDP and get up to about 20% of GDP uh, by roughly uh, the end of this decade. I think we're going to continue to struggle with what we're doing in the prescription drug market. There's uh, nothing like the recent introduction of the vaccine for us to understand how really important pharmaceutical innovation is. The monoclonal antibodies also are another example of really important innovations. And there's nothing like the cost of all those things to um, highlight our core financing problems. Um, the U.S. does uh, pay a lot for new innovations. And of course, that finances and encourages a lot of those innovations to take place. And we're going to continue to struggle with those types of things. And then we have to deal with the core demographic problem about how we finance the growing number of uh, people who are retired. There's the ratio of Medicare beneficiaries to workers has been rising over time, more, be more Medicare beneficiaries per worker. And that creates a core financing problem uh, in the U.S. that transcends any amount of efficiency. We need to become more efficient so we can finance the system better because if you have more people retired and fewer people working, um, all the people who are working have to pay more. And we fundamentally have uh, a challenge with how to build that financing system, both in terms of equity and in terms of efficiency. This is obviously a very complex um, and very broad topic of discussion. And I think we've kind of hit some of the main points superficially, but obviously there's quite a bit more content to learn about. Do you have any specific resources that you would recommend for our listeners who are interested in learning more about U.S. healthcare spending and, you know, where we're headed in this market? Uh, MedPAC, and I should add, I am speaking in my role as a uh, professor, not as my role of chair of MedPAC, but MedPAC will have a context chapter that will outline sort of a broad sense of healthcare spending in the Medicare program in particular in the U.S. And I think that's uh, a valuable thing to read. But there's an enormous number. I edit a journal called the American Journal of Managed Care. We'd love to have more people read the articles in the American Journal of Managed Care. They tend to be very targeted articles on a particular topic. It's a peer-reviewed journal, so good articles tend to be uh, narrow. There's broader sets of things in health affairs. JAMA has a bunch of viewpoints. NEJAM has some great perspectives that uh, folks write on. And there's a new journal, the NEJAM Catalyst, which has some really good pieces. Again, it depends on what parts of the system your uh, listeners are interested in. There's obviously a lot of work on the delivery of care, a lot of work on the financing care. There's some very specific things about how to measure quality, how to do risk adjustment, how to deal with competition or lack thereof. So um, there's no doubt that there's a wealth of resources people can go to to understand what's happening in the American healthcare sector. But because it is such a big area and because there's so many facets of the problem, there's not one source that will be able to sort of pull it all together simply. And uh, after a short read, uh, people say both that they A, understand, and B, now they have the solution. There's a lot of people uh, thinking broadly about how to make the system better. And um, I think the fact that we are where we are demonstrates how hard that is. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Chinu, thank you so much for being on our show. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, that about wraps up our episode on ENT in a nutshell. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.